Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, a retrospective series on the most compelling, the most controversial and the most extraordinary riders and races in cycling history. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. In our first episode, we went back to the chaotic 1949 edition of Paris-Roubaix, the only race in the monument's history that, thanks to an unconventional entrance to the velodrome and a whole season's worth of political bickering, lists two winners. From one monument to another, then, and Bernardino's second victory at Liège-Bastogne-Liège. No Frenchman has won Le Doyen since the Badger was victorious in the freezing 1980 edition, in which he braved blizzards and heavy snow lying thick on the road to come in almost 10 minutes ahead of a field of just 21 finishers. Eno later described the conditions as hellish, but hell and its connotations of perpetual fire couldn't be further from the freezing temperatures faced by the peloton that late April day. Eno was not wrong. Cité Infernal. This one race, perhaps more than any other, underlined Eno's credentials as the patron of the peloton. It represented a day that the Badger, then 26 years old, showcased his ability to suffer for the sport that he dominated, a day that Eno showed the world that he was in a different class from his peers, a day the frostbitten Frenchman gave the metaphorical two fingers to his rivals and almost paid the price by losing two of his own. After more than seven hours in the saddle battling what has been described as the worst weather in Ardennes history, Eno was first across the line. The man who finished second, the Netherlands' Henny Kuiper, came in 9 minutes 24 seconds down. The Lantern Rouge, Norway's Jostein Villeman, came home a massive 27 minutes in arrears. There's no two ways about it. Eno's awesome win is a feat that will probably never be seen again in cycling. It wasn't as if the thick snow came as too much of a surprise. The spring of 1980 had never really progressed beyond winter, with March's Paris-Nice, the so-called race to the sun, playing out in intervals of snow, rain and wind. There were calls for the fourth stage to Saint-Étienne to be cancelled amid heavy snow, but the peloton was sent out to race regardless. In his autobiography, Eno recollects the trees bending under the weight of the snow as the riders edged forward in what seemed like the night time. Worried that too many riders would abandon, Jean Lelio, the race organiser, announced that there would be no eliminations. So Eno did what most others did. I rode on, he said, simply to keep warm and to shake free the snow that stuck to my clothes. In that race to the sun, Eno arrived at the finish 45 minutes behind the stage winner, Pierre Batso of France. The next day, he rode in support of his compatriot, Gilbert Duclos-Lasalle, the yellow jersey, even though they were not teammates. Things did not improve at the Criterium International, 
where Eno won the time trial but struggled in the cold with a sore knee. His Renault Jatan boss, Cyril Guimar, was starting to get agitated with his riders, many of whom he felt were not pulling their weight. A mix of bronchitis, a calf strain and a crash saw Eno withdraw from Ghent-Wevelgem, but he finished fourth in Paris-Roubaix, fifth in the Amstel Gold Race and third at La Flèche Wallonne. But if his good legs were returning, the weather was not improving. The 66th edition of Liège-Baston-Liège would go down as one of the most legendary examples of racing in extreme weather. Up there with Eddie Merckx at Trecime de Lavaredo in 1968, Eugène Christophe in Milan-San Remo in 1910, Charlie Gaul at Monte Bondone in 1956, and Andy Hampston on the Gavia in the 1988 Giro d'Italia. There was snow from the get-go, with temperatures near freezing point and the first snowflakes falling as the riders rolled out of Liège, commentators were already dining out on the Neige-Baston-Neige pun as scores of riders threw in the sodden towel on the route to the south of the city. By the time the riders had passed through Spremont after 10 kilometres, they were facing a full-blown storm. In his book The Monuments, journalist Peter Cossens says Belgian climber Lucien van Imper pulled over to the side of the road and pleaded with the driver of a car heading north to give him a lift back to Liège. The withdrawals multiplied, Eno says in his autobiography. Everything doubled up as a refuge, a service station, a cafe, a bus shelter, even the front porch of a stranger's house. Even Eurosport's Sean Kelly, who would go on to win Le Doyen twice, was among the withdrawals that day. In William Fotheringham's biography of the Badger, Bernardino, The Rise and Fall of French Cycling, Kelly tells the author that many riders who had their families watching on the roadside quickly joined them in their cars. One of my teammates rode back to Liège after 40 kilometres, straight to the hotel, says Kelly, but he couldn't get his clothes off because his fingers were so cold, so he just got in the bath with everything on. An hour in, the countryside was covered by a blanket of thick snow. After two hours, just 60 riders from the 174 starters remained, leaving only one-third of the field. The snow laid so thick on the road that the riders remaining were forced to ride in the tyre tracks of the race's support cars. Eno soon found himself with just one teammate for support. Among those who had abandoned were the entire Renault Gitan squad, except their leader, Eno, and his trusty right-hand man, Maurice Leguiou. I too wanted to abandon, Eno admits in his autobiography. Crystals of snow were stinging my eyes so much that it felt like I was crying. The other riders around me were also suffering. Maurice Leguiou, as so often was the case, rode alongside me. I warned him, if it's still snowing at the feed zone, I'm getting off. But Leguiou urged Eno to keep pedalling. The sun had appeared briefly as the riders rode through Baston, although fresh snow started to fall on the return loop to Liège as the race headed back north. Leguiou was also battling frozen eyes. The Inner Ring blog reveals that Guimar handed him his expensive pair of Ray-Bans from the team car and told Leguiou to wear them to keep the snow out. Be careful, they cost a thousand francs, Guimar warned, but they proved a priceless gesture, for Leguiou's eyesight was restored and he was able to pace Eno up the St. Roche climb at Oufelise. I think if I hadn't been there, the Badger would have abandoned, Leguiou told Lequipe some years later. I think he wanted to be the last one on the team in that race, the final one to abandon the sinking ship. There was, however, a little sunshine on a bleak day. Eno's threat that he would abandon at the feed station at Vilsalm came to nothing because of the sun's timely reappearance. Maurice Champion, Renault's second director sportif, alongside Cyril Guimard, was waiting with dry clothes, two bidons of piping hot tea, and a new bike with a 23-tooth ring at the back, which would help Eno maintain traction in the slush on the climbs that peppered the return to Liège. Wet weather gear wasn't the same as it was today. For instance, gloves were made of wool, and within minutes were soaked through. 
Carrying no spares in the car, Guimar occasionally asked Eno to take them off so he could wring them out and attempt, in vain, to dry them on the car heater. Remarkably, although Eno wore gloves, red shoe covers and at times a red balaclava which at one point ended up perched on his head like a tea cosy, remarkably, the Frenchman never covered his knees with leg warmers that day. His job done, Ligiu joined the list of withdrawals, leaving Eno isolated. Until then, I hadn't really paid any attention to the race, Eno later said, but I decided the only thing I could do was to ride as hard as I could to keep myself warm. In his autobiography, Eno explains how he got a little helping hand here from his tyrannical director sportive. A bit later on, Cyril told me to take off my rain cape. Despite the cold, I took it off and, to warm myself up, put myself to work at the front of the peloton. I rode without turning around and, by the summit of the stocku, there was no one left in my wheel. By the time Eno really started to race, he was riding in a greatly reduced peloton, one that trailed Belgian duo Rudy Pavenager and Ludo Peters by 2 minutes 15 seconds going on to the Stocco. By upping the tempo, Eno rode clear with Italy's Silviano Contini and Dutchman Henk Lubeding catching the Belgians on the Haute-Levee climb, but neither of the escapees were among the 21 riders to reach Liège. With 80 kilometres remaining, Eno put in another acceleration and soloed clear. None of the other riders would see him again. The snow had by now stopped, but it was still icy cold. As he passed over the climbs of Rosier, La Redoux and the Côte de Forger, his advantage grew. 2 minutes 10 seconds with 70 kilometres remaining, rising to 5 minutes with 40 kilometres to go. I didn't look at anything, I didn't see anything. I only thought about myself, Eno later said, before sparing a thought for the few fans who had braved the cold. It must have been extremely tough for them too. The red balaclava which he had pulled over his face during the worst of the snowstorms had long been discarded. With Liège on the horizon, the sun had even started to peek through the clouds. The roads were dry and there was little evidence of the cataclysmic conditions the riders had been forced to endure. Some of the survivors had even removed their arm warmers. Cousins writes that many of those who abandoned the race earlier were there on the Boulevard de Sauvignères to cheer Eno across the line. There was no celebration from Eno, but not, as was assumed, because of any supposed anger he felt towards his plight. I didn't raise my arms, partly because everyone knew I had won, but also because I was completely done. If I had raised my arms, I would have fallen flat on my face. Journalists came to congratulate me. They were talking about neige baston neige. It was only then that I realised the feat that I had just accomplished. But what of the man who finished runner-up? It was 9 minutes and 24 seconds before Dutchman Henny Kuiper beat the Belgian Ronnie Klass in the consolatory sprint for second place. Things could have been so different were it not for an incident on the Stocko climb that derailed Kuiper's race. The Stocko is a very important place in the race, says Kuiper. There's always a sprint to get in a good position because it's a bit like the Koppenberg. A lot of hectic activity, domestiques riding for leaders, the TV cameras waiting for images, but too close to the peloton. Pushing things to the limit, Kuiper was forced to slam on his brakes to avoid a race motorcycle that had blocked his way. I slipped in the slush and had to take my foot clips out, he says. It made me crazy because I was really good that day. The then 31-year-old Peugeot SO Michelin rider was forced to push his bike up the steepest part of the climb before remounting and battling back into the fold. By the time he had reached the main pack, Eno had already ridden clear in pursuit of the leaders. T.I. Rally's man, Peters, was up ahead and Kuiper found himself with four of the Belgians' teammates. He had made the call not to lead the chase and make them work, but it backfired. It was a big mistake tactically, he says. Nobody had realised that Eno could stay away for so long, but he had gone. There was nothing left to do but continue. It was a pity not to be with Eno when he attacked. He was the best that day, but I could have been there. He was also suffering like hell.
Did Kuiper ever consider quitting rather than riding on for second place? I never thought of quitting in my career, he says. It was a big race. I was fit, motivated, a bike rider. Sometimes the weather is bad, but I was a professional. People were crying, but I just rode on. There remained much regret on the part of Kuiper, however, who went on to win the Tour of Flanders and the Giro di Lombardia in 1981, Paris-Roubaix in 1983, and, age 36, Milan-San Remo in 1985. What happened with the moto made me so mad, he says. After the crash, I was so pissed off. That annoyed me more than the cold. I was the best of the rest. I was in a very good day. Otherwise, you don't come second in such a big race. But I could have been second in the same time as Eno. Eno would bathe in glory, but at some cost. The Frenchman rated his second Liège-Bastogne-Liège win as his most beautiful classics triumph. He put it up there alongside his first victory in the Giro de Lombardia in 1979, where he broke clear with 150 kilometres remaining before beating Silvano Contini in a two-up sprint. But in a post-race television interview, before some of the remaining riders had even crossed the line, Eno admitted he came close to calling it quits early on. I think if it was still snowing as hard as the feed zone, I would have abandoned because it was really too difficult, he said. But it wasn't snowing, and there was even a little bit of sun. So I took off my rain cape, and that allowed my body to breathe a little, and allowed me to climb the stocko a bit better, and then all the other climbs to follow. Back at the team hotel, a hot bath had been poured for the champion. But as soon as he stepped in, Eno cried out in pain. His frozen body was unable to cope with the heat. I had to empty the bath of hot water, get in on all fours, and then, with the cold water first of all, and, gradually, a bit of warm water, I erased the stains of the day. During the thawing process, Eno realised that the middle fingers of each hand remained numb. More than three decades later, he told William Fotheringham, I can still feel it in the second finger of both hands. They are still not right. When it's below four or five degrees and I have to work outside, I need to wear gloves. Riding in those conditions might have seemed like madness, but that evening, he says, there was no need to go crazy. I dined on a salad niçoise, ham on the bone and a peach melba. I allowed myself a glass of Beaujolais. I even woke up at 5.30am the next morning to take a plane home to Brittany in time for lunch. A month later, Eno was victorious in the only Grand Tour he had not yet won, the Giro d'Italia, prompting hopes that he could emulate the great Eddie Merckx and complete the Triple Crown. But although Eno would become world champion in August at Solange, it was not as a three-time winner of the Tour de France. Tendonitis in his left knee forced him to retire from the Tour in yellow, still with a week remaining. But in a strange turn of events that would echo that spring, Eno and Kuiper rode clear of the pack in torrential rain on the fifth stage to Lille from, of course, Liège. Wearing the rainbow stripes, Eno would win both Amstel Gold and, despite crashing seven times, Paris-Roubaix in 1981, although he could take only 18th place on his return to Liège the following year. His mythical victory in that snow-swept edition came when the badger was at the zenith of his powers, but, as Fotheringham says, the first chinks in the armour were appearing. The knee problem that popped up in the 1980 tour and haunted him in his later years could be traced back to the snowy Ardennes. Speaking to the Belgian newspaper Le Dernier Heure on the 30th anniversary of his victory, Eno said, I still have very good memories of that day, even though I didn't realise how the cold was going to affect my fingers. I suffered, but not physically. My legs were in good shape. I was there to win a race that I enjoyed, unlike the Tour of Flanders and Paris-Roubaix. Quizzed again about his thoughts of quitting, he replied, when you're in that scenario, when you're at the front, you forget the cold, the snow and the freezing rain. You don't abandon. When you're in form, you can deal with anything. The heat and the cold are tough, but you can deal with them mentally. On the sporting side, 
it was actually quite an easy race to win because of the conditions. Whether we will ever again witness anything quite so remarkable in a bike race is unlikely. Today, the UCI's extreme weather protocol means that races are more likely to be cancelled or shortened in such demanding conditions. Stage 19 of the 2019 Tour de France was stopped before its planned end because of a freak hailstorm and resulting landslide on the Col d'Isran. And, at the 2013 edition of Milan-San Remo, the riders got off their bikes on the snowy Turchino Pass before being bussed to the Ligurian coast ahead of Gerard Chirlek's surprise win. Clothing and protective kit, says Kuiper, is also so much better nowadays. When he won Liège-Baston-Liège three years ago, Wout Poles had gloves with a battery and heating inside. But back in my time, it was the same for everybody. Cycling is a sport for people with character. You have to work hard and love your job. When it snows during Liège-Baston-Liège, you don't even think about your pain or your problems. Now, no one is suggesting they lack character, but it's undeniable that today's stars of the peloton won't have to face anything like Kuiper and his colleagues did. The next Frenchman to win Liège-Baston-Liège might well have to outlast the elements, but they're guaranteed to have it easier than Eno ever did on his cold road to hell. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. You can catch more snippets of cycling history from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze. If you want to follow me, I'm at, at Graham Wilgos, and you can follow Eurosport at Eurosport underscore UK. Plus, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Join us for our next episode when we'll revisit the legendary climb to the Basilica St. Luca in Bologna, where Fiorenzo Magni famously rode biting down on a spare inner tube just to reach the top. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.